Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. We're very excited to announce that we are changing our name to Wild Heart Meditation Center. You can stay subscribed to the podcast as you currently are, or if you choose to join us again at a later date in the future, just remember to search wherever you get your podcasts for Wild Heart Meditation Center. We're excited to be introducing new facilitators to our group and expanding our presence in our local community. Enjoy. Tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about this topic, the awakening factors. Um, The seven awakening factors are a part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You don't need to know any of this. Uh, Hopefully, some of this will feel relevant and resonate. The Buddha's teaching is called the Dharma. And the Dharma, when translated, just kind of means the way things are. And my experience with hearing the Buddha's teaching was uh, one that I feel like when I heard the principles of Buddhism, compassion and forgiveness and non-harming, and when I started practicing mindfulness, it all kind of internally clicked. There's this really big emphasis in his teaching called Ehipasika, which means to come and see for yourself. And so the Buddha was a really interesting teacher where he didn't really teach any dogma or he didn't really teach any like set of principles that you have to believe in. There were really practices, very pragmatic practices that you could put into action and to kind of see if they click for you. And so hopefully as I talk about the awakening factors tonight, some of the information will click and some of it won't yet or some of it won't ever. (laughs) And we can talk about all of that. So the awakening factors are factors that we develop through practicing meditation. And there are seven of them. There's mindfulness, investigation, energy, a word piti, which is a Pali Sanskrit word that means joy or delight. Kind of hard to translate, so I just keep it as piti up on the board. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven. And so I want to kind of start by talking about awakening and what that is and what that means. From a Buddhist perspective, awakening is sometimes in religious Buddhism, like other religions, mystified, right? It's kind of like this transformative process that you can eventually attain through rigorous practice over years and years and years and maybe you can become fully enlightened and we could call that awakening and some of us may have different thoughts and opinions or beliefs about that but one thing's clear is the Buddha wasn't so much interested in big awakening as he was ordinary awakening and so from a kind of Buddhist perspective a lot of what the Buddha shared about was how we all have moments and experiences of awakening in our lives, like where we've been struggling with something and then all of a sudden we have clarity, right? Or where we keep repeating the same destructive habit over and over again and then we find a way out, right? Or we maybe uh, get lost in anger or emotion and react, but we learn how to work with that emotion. And so these are all experiences of awakening. Two themes that I talked about about a month ago, I shared about awakening, was that awakening from a Buddhist perspective is ordinary 
and it's gradual. So all of us have had moments of clarity. We've all had epiphanies. We've all had insight. And this is largely due to being introspective beings. Human beings have something in neuroscience they call metacognition, which is an ability to look internally to your own cognitive thoughts and emotions and to have awareness of what's going on in here. And because we're self-reflective beings with a brain that can do that, we all have awakening. We all have insight. And I think naturally, this is just my belief, as you go throughout life, whether you intentionally sit and practice mindfulness like we did tonight, or you just live your life, you're going to have many moments of awakening. So it's ordinary, but it's also gradual, which means that as you practice mindfulness, like we did tonight, as you intentionally bring awareness into more moments of your life, those small moments repeated over time create more clarity and more insight and more wisdom. And so I like to say that awakening increases both the potency and the frequency of moments of awakening. So that means that there's more depth and they happen more often. And so the problem with being introspective or self-reflective without mindfulness is our inner reflection can become harsh and critical and analytical, right? Without like maybe some support of doing this inner exploration with guides and friends and other introspective people, right? Without fellowship and community, here we call it sangha, which is a kind of spiritual community, we get really fucked up in our own shit, (laughs) you know? And we get lost. And so we'll talk about in a little bit, we need the support of other people and we need really to have some posts or some kind of guides for deepening our awakening. The interesting thing about the factors of awakening, the ones that I've written on the board, is you don't need to know any of this shit to develop them, right? So what I'm going to share tonight is kind of a way of reflecting and checking in to see if these things become present in our lives and how we can support them, like make them grow, and what things we need to do to uh, balance them. Because the awakening factors are all about balance. In the Buddha's path, what he's encouraging us to do the vehicle for awakening is mindfulness. He refers to it as the direct path to awakening. This active awareness. Bearing to mind, moment to moment, calmly observing our thoughts, feelings, and emotions as they come and go. And that's the definition of mindfulness. It's an ability to focus attention into the present experience, and calmly observe and monitor thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations as they come and go. Sounds pretty boring, but it's very powerful (laughs) having awareness in this way, and it's powerful for a couple reasons. 
One is mindfulness increases presence. Presence is one of these things that is so simple that it's easy to overlook for me. It's like the gift of mindfulness. If I'm looking at and reflecting on what have I been given from this practice is I'm able to show up for more of my life more often. I call that presence. The ability to show up for more of my life more often. Because we often become hijacked by the urgency of the mind. The mind is conceptual, meaning your mind creates realms that don't even exist. Two of these that are very popular are the future and the past. Right? The future is a thought about something that might happen. The past is a thought about something that did happen. The future and the past aren't present. <laughs> They're not available here. They're thoughts. Now, we want to use conceptual thought, right? But we want to use conceptual thought with mindfulness. That means when I go into my mind and I'm planning, I know that I'm planning. Because for me, there's a fine line between planning and worrying or planning and obsessing, or planning and neurotically running around and doing uh, my kind of fearful gymnastics in my mind. And so when I bear mindfulness on my mind, I can practice thinking with some skill. And we call this skillfulness. Right? So one of the benefits of mindfulness is definitely presence If we get caught in the conceptual realm of the past, the problems of the past, we usually get caught in this feeling of hopelessness, right? depression, guilt and regret, resentment, shame. Right? These are kind of the frequent visitors of the mind's obsession with the past. But when I bear conscious awareness, mindfulness, in to my mind when I'm thinking about the past. I can learn from my mistakes. I can recognize that the past is behind me and I'm here in the present. I have agency in the present. I'm not so hopelessly bound to my regrets. So mindfulness gives us a little bit of space. If I get stuck in the realm of the future, I usually get caught in anxiety, fear and worry, uncertainty, anticipation, restlessness, agitation, anxiety. There are two other areas that the mind tends to conceptually get stuck in. One is fantasy, which is, I call it the I'd rather be's, or the if only's. If only I had, or I'd rather be somewhere else with someone else doing something else. The mind creates a lot of stories about all the things that it wants other than this, right? And it seems to never quite be fully satisfied when we get those things anyway, because there are more fantasies and there are more thoughts about things. In the other conceptual realm we get stuck in is this idea of the self, who I am and how I'm doing. We have a very inaccurate view of the self. Right? And the self is hard to be aware of because it's this constant inner voice about I talked about a couple weeks ago, Brene Brown calls it the inner hustler. It's the voice that's comparing and competing and outperforming. It's that part of our mind that's stuck in self-obsession. And so we lose touch when we get out of presence. We lose touch with this immediate realm. 
and we go into the conceptual realm. And we can go into the conceptual realm and we want to, but we want to go there with mindfulness. Right? We want to have some, uh, as the Buddha calls it, yonisu manasakara, careful attention. We're not trying to tell the mind to stop thinking, never going to work. But we are trying to approach the mind with mindfulness. And so presence is uh, this idea of coming back into the here and now and touching base like we did tonight with the anchor. You know, when the mind kind of drifts, you'll notice during meditation it will do that. <laughs> maybe for a minute, maybe for two, maybe for ten, sometimes for twenty. When you notice we're kind of way off over here, we're a little bit lost in the conceptual realm. We can kind of look at the mind as an object. Instead of being the subject of the mind, you looked at it objectively and observe it and say, oh, okay, mind, I see you. I see where you're at right now. And you tell the mind, hey, not right now. Let's come back and just hear the sounds for a second. Let's feel the body. Mindfulness, when translated from the early Pali Sanskrit language, it, it comes from this word satipatthana, which means to remember the ground. So there's this element of like falling asleep that we forget that we're here. You may notice this in your day-to-day -day life. is like the Buddha calls this perpetual wandering, that people without mindfulness are uh, you know, not immoral or wrong or sinful. The Buddha doesn't use language like that. He says you're perpetually wandering. Wherever your mind wants to go, you just go there with it, <laughs> right? which can be fun sometimes but can be very unfun a lot of times. And so to remember the ground just means to remember that we're here, and this is this simple presence. I say when we lose presence, we lose ground. When you lose ground, we lose stability. When we lose stability, we do stupid shit. Right? So if we lose too much connection to the here and now, we get lost in the enormity of our emotions and our fears and our anxieties and our depressions and our fantasies and our self-obsession and we do stupid shit. And all of us do. Right? But remembering the ground means coming back and connecting with the here and now. And so presence alone is not enough. This is one aspect of mindfulness. The first factor of awakening is presence. But we also want to learn to develop a non-reactive awareness. This is what I sometimes call the babysitter mind or the observer mind. Non-reactive awareness means that with mindfulness, we get to look into this full range of the present experience as an observer. This means we look at the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral parts of the present experience. And we're trying to not interfere or react. I shouldn't say we're not trying to react. Reactions will happen. <laughs> we're not trying to interfere with or change or fix or suppress or push away or get lost in the experience. We're just trying to be aware. Bhikkhu Analyo, he's a uh, scholar on the Buddha's discourses. He calls this the detached receptivity of mindfulness. And he says that the detached receptivity of mindfulness enables one to step back from the situation at hand and thereby become an unbiased observer of one's subjective involvement in the entire situation. And so what this means for me, to give an example, 
is we've all had moments of noticing that reactive voice come up in the mind. Right? That voice that is pissed off, the voice that's afraid, the voice that's lonely, the voice that's just urgent. And a non-reactive awareness just simply means that we notice the reactive voice and instead of acting on it, simply watch it come and go. Not getting caught up in the temporary emotional pull or the dramatic story that the voice is telling us. It doesn't mean we push the voice away and tell it to shut up because that would be suppression. That's reactive. (laughs) Right? It doesn't mean that we go out and just listen to every story that voice is telling us. It means where we welcome it, we acknowledge it, we observe it, and we say, you're a part of the experience, but you're not all of the experience. You can be here, but you're not who I am. You're just a voice. You're a part of what's here. You can come, but you got to go. Right? And you give it space to do that. So Alan Watts talks about this idea of mindfulness, presence, and awareness. He says, The art of living is neither careless drifting on the one hand, nor fearful clinging on the other. It consists of being sensitive to each moment in regarding it as utterly new and unique and having the mind open and wholly receptive. So the first two factors kind of go hand in hand. Mindfulness and ability to focus into the present experience and calmly acknowledge thoughts, feelings, and emotions as they come and go. And investigation. Investigation in, from a Buddhist perspective could mean a few things. I think the simplest and most important is by paying attention to what's going on, by watching the mind, you can start to see clearly When the mind gets caught up in, traditionally we would call this greed, hatred, or delusion, which are very strong words, but when it gets caught up in obsessiveness, when it gets caught up in afflictive emotion, when it gets caught up in confusion and self-doubt, so we can start to investigate and see when the mind is filled with these qualities, obsession, affliction, confusion. And we can start to work with those mental states and to practice cultivating, developing a skillful, helpful mind and learning to try to let go of and not identify the unskillful, unhelpful parts of the mind. One way I teach this very simply in secular mindfulness, out of the Buddhist kind of context, I teach a lot of meditation in the kind of like public space is I call this the coach and the critic. And so we all have this kind of inner voice, right? And the voice always thinks it's helping. That's the problem with the voice is the voice always thinks it happens. Here's the second problem with the voice. It sounds just like you, right? And so you're always listening to it because it sounds just like you and it always tends to sell you that it's going to help you. But sometimes the voice is like a coach. It's like skillful. It's helpful. It's saying, okay, Andrew, like you have all these fears in the future, but like if you just focus on what's happening today and do one thing at a time, I'm sure everything will work out fine. We've got to let go of that and just get through the next step. That's like the coach, this encouraging voice. 
The critic sounds just like the coach, thinks it's helpful, can even sometimes sound encouraging, but it's got this kind of uh, critical pressure. You know, this unskillful voice in us that says that we need to do better, we need to be better. We're stupid for saying what we said at the meeting today. We're going to lose our job. Just like a lot of unhelpful advice. <laughs> and so investigation means that we can, just like mindfulness, is this presence, awareness. But investigation just means kind of taking it a step further and looking into. I like that phrase, as simple as that. That's what investigation is, just looking into. So as I pause, as I stop, as I become aware of what's happening, I start to look into the mind. And I ask myself, what is this? What is this like in here right now? Is it constructive? Is it skillful? Is it helpful? Is it destructive? And of course, the answer to that question changes all the time. Hence why we need mindfulness before investigation. (laughs) Because we need this presence and awareness over and over and over again to check in and say, what is it like now? How is it now? What's happening now? The important part about investigation, this is maybe a little bit more abstract, is you want to emphasize asking the question more than having an answer. So when you investigate what's happening in your mind, you don't want to try to fix and solve. Like I call this analysis paralysis, right? When you get lost in analyzing thoughts. In mindfulness, you're not analyzing your thoughts. You're watching. You're paying close attention and you're just trying to kind of see and get a feel for what's happening in here. Through non-reactive awareness of mindfulness, we can start to develop discernment. And discernment means just looking clearly into the mind to see, to discern, is this skillful or is this unskillful? Is this constructive? Is this unconstructive? Now here's a challenging part is that when we start to investigate or just ask the question, what's happening right now, looking into it, we can sometimes start to feel these secondary emotions like shame. We can start to judge our mind for even having judgments. You ever judge yourself for judging or feel bad for feeling bad, right? This is this weird thing. It's like this shame feedback loop, especially Western minds tend to have this. This kind of like a kind of shame-based lens that we view a lot of our experience through. And so Joseph Goldstein, one of the kind of senior teachers in this tradition, he says, although discerning what is skillful from what's unskillful in your mind is basic to the Buddha's teaching, in our Western culture it's a very delicate process. For many people, it's an easy step from recognizing a particular mind state like greed or hatred as being unwholesome or unconstructive to the feeling that you're actually a bad person for having it or that somehow it's wrong for the mind state to even arise in the first place. This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment, more aversion, and more suffering, which are more afflictive mind states. He says, it's not a helpful cycle. So 
we want to kind of look into the mind with this impartiality, without judgment, without criticism. Investigation also involves a lot deeper inquiry. And by deeper, I don't mean more special or more mystical. It just means maybe more subtle. And people, you know, if you're new here, people practice meditation very intensively. Right? There are monks that practice. Some monks don't practice. <laughs> Some of us have sat retreats, long three days of silence practicing meditation, a week of silence practicing meditation, months of meditation practice. And so there's a variety of kind of depth to investigation. And one of the things that we can look into is this idea of, I call it the process over the content. And so if I lose some of you all here, that's okay. We'll maybe get back on track. <clears throat> but the idea here is actually really simple. In any moment of experience, any moment of awareness, you can only really be making contact with one of six things. A thought, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, or a feeling. And of course, these things can co-arise. They happen at the same time. Now, we look at things in terms of content, meaning when a thought comes up in my mind, I'm usually a part of the story. I'm the subject of it, right? And it's usually has some emotional pull to it. And I usually kind of gather more evidence for the thought and create bigger stories and pull other people in and subtract people. And so the content is about me in my life and where I am and what I'm doing, the process is just noticing the thoughts of thought. The feelings of feeling, the sights of sight, the smells of smells, the taste of the taste, the sound is the sound. Part of what we're practicing during mindfulness is just looking at what this experience is. The Buddha says in the Rohitasa Sutta, in one of his discourses, he says, In this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, there is the world, the origin of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the path that leads to the ceasing of the world. So what he's saying in a simple way is we construct the world through our thoughts and perceptions. And that's a powerful fucking process that happens in here. You know, and it doesn't mean that the world out here doesn't exist. The Buddha doesn't care about whether it does or doesn't. He cares about the world we construct through our thoughts and perceptions. So if we can start to come to see a thought as just a thought, we can have some discernment and say, well, do I want to think the thought as a constructive thought? Or can I just see it as a thought and let it come and go as a thought? And I won't get too far into this, but another aspect of investigation is looking into the nature of experience itself. So that's the process of experience. There's a word for these things. They call it phenomenology, which is the study of experience, how experience happens, thoughts, feelings, Sounds, perceptions, or sorry, thoughts, feelings, sounds, smells, tastes, sights. But the nature of experience is these three marks. 
the three marks of existence is what the Buddha kind of refers to them as. And they are, one, impermanence, that everything that is to arise, that is to happen, will also pass. And we notice this if we take a step back and don't overthink it. We experience birth, aging, sickness, and death. It's a natural cause of being born, is death. One of the jokes is, why did they fire the uh, Buddhist mortician? Because he kept saying that the cause of death was birth, right? Uh, is it mortician? Who, who examines dead bodies? Coroner. Coroner. There you go. <laughs> the coroner. So we all experience impermanence, right? It's a natural part of being alive. But each moment... Each moment is arising and passing sounds. Where's that sound now? Right? But you can turn this internally. Thoughts, feelings, they all come and go. So this is a nature, this is an aspect of reality, is that impermanence is king. We can't win impermanence. All that comes and arises is subject to pass. It's something we can investigate. We can also investigate that when we hold on to impermanent experiences, we suffer. They call that dukkha, which is something we can investigate. And then there's a third, which is all experience. This is one's a little bit more tricky. All experience is impersonal, meaning it's not happening to something you call you. Who you are is a part of this process. You are a changing self. Check it out. See if you can find yourself somewhere in here. (laughs) And so these practices of investigation are for the purpose of liberation, freedom, awakening. So the question here is important. How does looking at impermanence How does looking at craving and clinging, which causes suffering, how does looking at the impersonal nature of experience create freedom? And this is part of what we're investigating. So mindfulness, investigation. The third characteristic or the third uh, factor of awakening is energy. Energy comes from the Pali Sanskrit word virya, which has a myriad of different definitions to it. It can mean anything from energy to effort to courage, vigor, perseverance, persistence. It's said that the Buddha talked more about energy or effort than any other factor of his teaching. Because I think it's one of the ones that enables us to do anything else. To do anything, to have mindfulness, requires we have a little bit of effort. Have you noticed that the mind doesn't just naturally become aware and non-reactive and uh, investigative? Right? The mind naturally just wanders. And so it takes effort to practice. But having effort is a very fragile balance. Right? Because some of us are very high-strung. This is kind of my tendency. And so when I approach meditation, it can be this kind of militaristic striving. 
It's like if my mind wanders for a second, I'm doing it wrong, right? And this kind of, what it is really is it's aversion. It's this restless, agitated mind, this kind of destructive mind state. Thinks it's trying to be helpful, and it's telling me I have to strive to be present every moment. Right, which is what I would call unwise effort, <laughs> imbalanced effort, incomplete effort. Some of us are a little bit lazy. You know, it's kind of hard to build the momentum and to really have any interest or curiosity. And so for those that kind of have a little bit more complacency in their system, it may take a little bit more energy and kind of arousal. Sometimes we need courageous effort in just different aspects of our life, like to confront a problem, to work through something. You know, this kind of like perseverance and persistence. You know, when we're really struggling to change a behavior or to try to uh, practice letting go of something in our lives. We sometimes really have to be accountable and really have to take some courageous effort. This is funny. In Burma, uh, Myanmar, now it's called, I went and sat a retreat for a month back in January. And Burma, the Burmese monks, the way that I understand it, they perceive the Burmese people to be lazy. The monks, the Burmese monks, perceive their own society to be lazy. So the Burmese are like hyper strung out on effort. The Dharma talk every night pretty much for an entire month while I was there was on effort. (laughs) And so it's kind of telling in the way that they practice. So they're big on get your ass in the cushion, sit down, every moment your mind wanders, Notice it, notice it, notice it, let it go, come back. And one of the first nights I was there, actually the first full night, I'd flown, I don't know, 26 hours or something to get there. I was jet lagged. They wake up at 3 in the morning and they practice till 10 at night. 16 hours of meditation, sitting and walking meditation the whole day. So I did 15 hours of meditation. There's one hour sit at night. All the sitting periods are one hour long. There's an hour sit at night. I was tired. I was in the meditation hall, and so I made a decision. I was like, I'm just going to go and kind of cash out for the night. I just flew. I'm jet lagged. I could use the extra hour because I'm waking up at 3. So I start walking down the path, and there's this uh, Burmese monk just standing, like pacing at the end of the path. And I call him the Dharma Hall Monitor. And it was his job to watch the yogis and their practice to make sure they were practicing right. And so I was walking. I didn't know this yet. I was just kind of start to walk very slowly right by him. And he says, excuse me. And I looked up at him and I said, I was kind of surprised. I was like, yeah. And he's like, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to bed. And he said, oh, no, meditation time. And I said, oh, I know it's meditation time, but I'm tired. I just got in. I'm going to go to bed. And he looked at me and he said, please try. Please try. 
And I was like, fuck, I can't disappoint this guy. <laughs> and so I turned around and I walked slowly back to the meditation hall. I sat down and I was just like in awe, right? <laughs> because what I realized in this kind of moment was that he believed in me in that moment more than I believed in myself. You know, when my mind was ready to give up, he knew, I'll be here for you. I got your back. I'm going to help you persevere, right? That type of energy. And the Buddha talks about this in his kind of the mythological story of his awakening. He uh, is sitting and sitting and sitting and his mind is terrorizing him with aversion and hatred and greed and lust and self-doubt and all of these kind of forces of his mind are trying to get him to just stop sitting. Go do something else with your life. Why are you even sitting here? And he says, let only my skin and bones remain. Let my blood dry up. I will not give up until I have accomplished what can be done by human effort and endeavor. Right? And sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we need this type of inspiration. We need this push. And that's what I really loved about the Burmese is that they were all about the push. They were basically like, you are way more capable than what you think you're capable of. And you're about to find that out in a month of 16-hour days of meditation practice. <laughs> and they were right. And I wouldn't have gone that far without that encouragement. Well, but here's the flip side of that. Energy during meditation can sometimes be this energy that's like enthusiasm, which is sometimes that's how effort is in energy is described, is this kind of like joyful interest. And sometimes energy can be this agitated striving. And when we strive, we lose mindfulness because the hindrance of restlessness and agitation comes up so strong that it's hard to stay with it. So we really have to work to balance our joyful interest and our energetic application of the practice. And so we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that later. But energy is a big part of meditation. You may notice you get tired, right? Or some of us get restless every time we sit. And there's this kind of spectrum. And some of us are more high-strung, hyperactive. And some of us are more dissociative and underactive. And so we have to kind of work on balancing energy. And there are ways we can do that. And the first is just to be non-reactive towards the state you're in. Right? If you're tired, try to practice non-reactive awareness and just submit to it a little bit. And say, okay, I'm tired right now. And once there's acceptance of the sleepiness, you can start to work with it. Because right? there's cooperation. It's almost like... It's a shitty employee, sleepy mind. And you've got to really like help sleepy mind be more active. <laughs> but you're not in a right to fire state, so you've got to like, you know, really work with sleepy mind because he's going to get the union guys and you're going to be screwed. So your only job is to just be like, okay, I can't change sleepy. He's going to be sleepy, but I can try to encourage him to stay more present. You can adjust the posture, you can open the eyes, you can uh, do standing meditation, walking meditation, you can take shorter breaths. The Buddha says if all else fails, you can stand on one leg on a chair. It's hard to fall asleep like that. 
And the same goes with hyperactivity. When we're restless, we really have to learn how to say, okay, restlessness, you're here. I have to cooperate with restlessness. Here's the thing about if you know the hindrances, craving, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. You can't overcome any of the hindrances with one of the other hindrances. You can't overcome restlessness with aversion. Right? You can't overcome sleepiness with craving. You have to cooperate and work with it. So that's energy. And the next two I'm going to kind of, or the next one, PT, I'll talk about just for a moment. And then I'm going to talk about tranquility and concentration together. So PT means a delightful interest or rapture. It's a mental and or a physical energy of delight that comes from having a peaceful mind. So some of us have experienced this to kind of varying degrees. It's that feeling in meditation sometimes where you feel really tranquil and your mind feels very peaceful or still. And there's a little bit of a, kind of an exuberant feeling or wave of lightness that comes from experiencing that. Now, there's kind of a spectrum of piti. It can be very subtle, which is sometimes just an uplifting quality of mind. Like you may notice that when your mind's calm and still, your mind's also bright. Right? And that's a subtle kind of level of, I wouldn't even say level, quality of piti. Piti can also, for some people, manifest as waves of excitement in the body, like waves, emotional feelings of excitement. And part of the practice with PT is to learn how, just like you would with restlessness or sleepiness, to not get too attached to the feeling. You can't actually get PT by trying to get it. It's a weird thing. And when you try to get it or you try to hold on to a good feeling during meditation, Usually craving and attachment comes in and kind of ruins it. And so one of the kind of delicate balances here is one of the simple ways this shows up is sometimes you just have like a really good meditation practice and you're like, I'm doing it right today. You know? And then you do it the next time and it's like, man, what the fuck happened? Right? And it's like we feel like there's this kind of I was doing it right feeling because the mind was probably uplifted and bright and peaceful. And so we can get it kind of attached to this idea that meditation is state dependent. It's like if I feel good, it was good. If my mind was peaceful and calm, I was doing it right. And it's just something we want to look out for, especially with PT, is this kind of quality. And for some of us, I'll just say, is some, sometimes this PT can become very intense. It can also be felt and experienced as very unpleasant. So that's PT. And then tranquility and concentration are a good pair. These are factors of awakening that kind of work together. As the mind becomes more still and focused, the mind becomes more calm and tranquil. And so relaxation during meditation is important. You know, sometimes I think I can forget you know, mindfulness is all about clarity and insight, and that takes effort. 
But it also, in order to have clarity, you need the mind to be a little bit tranquil and relaxed, not so agitated. And this is usually where I start with teaching groups. My first objective with our Western minds is just to help us to feel a little bit more at ease in the mind and body. So one of the best ways to kind of develop this is to practice the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of breath and body. The mind will wander, but to really try to absorb your attention into the body, starting like we did tonight by relaxing any areas that are tense or tight, taking deep breaths. Sometimes some of you guys know the practice metta, which is loving-kindness practice, trying to develop a kind and light, friendly quality of mind. In order to get a little bit of tranquility and a little bit less agitation and stirring around, I find that, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that some of us need the cooling factors, which are highlighted in blue, and we need to start there with concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. And then we can move into practicing the warming factors, which are investigation. Uh, what's the second? Energy and PT. Mindfulness is always the starting point. So relaxation is an important aspect of developing focus, collecting the awareness, and having mindfulness present. The more that we develop focus, the more mindfulness will be able to use your peripheral awareness to watch thoughts come and go, to watch feelings come and go, to watch sounds come and go, because the attention is stable. It has a home base, like I said in the meditation. So when it wanders, you can kind of bring it back, and it steadies the attention so mindfulness can do its job. And the last but not least quality that we're developing some may even say, go as far as to say maybe the goal of mindfulness, <laughs> is the development of equanimity. Equanimity comes from the Pali Sanskrit word upekka, which means there in the middleness. And it means an ability to be with whatever you're experiencing, sensory events, letting them come and go without push and pull. It means an inner balance between the extremes of pushing away parts of the experience and being pulled away by parts of experience. It, I think the best translation means even-mindedness or balance, harmony. Right? And so I want to read just real quick and then we'll have some discussion what the Buddha says about balancing the awakening factors. He gives us kind of two things, one internal factor and one external factor that helps us to stay in balance. He says, bhikkhus, which is us, as to internal factors, I do not see any other factor that is so helpful for the arising of the seven factors of awakening as this, careful attention. When a bhikkhu is accomplished in careful attention, it is to be expected that the seven factors of awakening will be developed and cultivated. Bhikkhus, as to external factors, 
I do not see any other factor that is so helpful for the arising of the seven factors of awakening as this, good friendship. When a bhikkhu is accomplished in good friendship, it is to be expected that the seven factors of awakening will be developed and cultivated. The Buddha over and over again throughout the discourses says that there's nothing better for the development of your mind than careful attention, mindfulness, which is the starting point, and the words of a wise friend. We are the most social animals on the planet. Having people that are introspective, having people that are interested in awakening, whatever that means to them. Right? These people help to keep us accountable to our own practice. They give us the investigation. We investigate with them. They encourage us like this monk did with me. <laughs> they push us. You know, they help us to feel interest and delight, excitement. And they help us to relax when we need to chill out, to focus where we need to focus, and to balance when we're imbalanced. And so I love that. I love that he talks about those two factors. is mindfulness, careful attention, and the words of a wise friend, good friendship. So these are some thoughts, lots of thoughts. If you come every week, this is kind of what I end up doing every week, is biting off more than I can chew. <laughs> 